The Brazilian official threw up lean and lanky arms and clawed the air with wildly distended fingers. Leiningen, he shouted. You're insane. They're not creatures you can fight. They're an elemental, an act of God. Ten miles long, two miles wide, ants. Nothing but ants. And every single one of them a fiend from hell. Before you can spit three times, they'll eat a full-grown buffalo to the bones. I tell you, if you don't clear out at once, there'll be nothing left of you but a skeleton picked as clean as your own plantation. Hello everyone, and welcome to the Lycos Podcast. I'm your host, Trevor Marcy, and with me is my friend and colleague, Matt. Hello, Matt. Good morning, Trevor. Today, we're talking about the short story, Lining In in the Ants, first published in the U.S. in Esquire magazine in 1938. This is a classic story of man versus nature. And even though we tend to favor the stories here that feature themes of man in nature or man with nature, I have to admit that I enjoyed this one tremendously. There were times where I found myself just smiling ear to ear as I read it. Matt, I mean, what did you think of it, Matt? So it kind of reminds me of the short stories you read when you're in 6th or 7th grade. And I don't care. <laughs> uh, I really enjoyed this. It's, <laughs> it is classic man versus nature. It is, it is where brilliance and where thought and where science and hard work, you can overcome something. It's just, there's some great themes. And, and not to mention... We talk about when this was written, 1938. There, there may be a titch of allegory here. Oh, oh, there, there are many parallels and parables in this story, which we will not go into. No, because they really. I mean, the the thing about the story is the story is not about what the story is about, and and that's pretty clear. But the story itself is so good, and it has a lot of good natural elements in it. That that's what we're going to focus on today. Just keep in mind that this was written by a German at about 1937. That should probably explain most that you need to know about it. <laughs> um, what we're going to do today in the podcast is we're going to talk about this short story. And then in the latter half, we're going to move into a discussion about some particular outdoor skills and techniques that you can use to, in, to improve your experience outdoors. But first, we're going to walk through the story and pick out some highlights and kind of discuss this as we go along. So let's launch right into it. There's this guy in Leiningen. And the introduction that I read is about this Brazilian official that comes to warn him that his plantation is about to be overrun by this large, large colony of ants. And this is what it says. This, this was his reaction to the Brazilian official's warning. During his three years as a planter, Leiningen had met and defeated drought, hood, plague, and all other acts of God which had come upon him. This unbroken success he attributed solely to the observance of his lifelong motto. The human brain needs only to become fully aware of its powers to conquer even the elements. Yes, Leiningen had always known how to grapple with life. Even here, in this Brazilian wilderness, his brain had triumphed over every difficulty and danger it had so far encountered. First, he had vanquished primal forces by cunning and organization. Then he had enlisted the resources of modern science to increase miraculously the yield of his plantation. And now, he was sure he would prove more than a match for the irresistible ants. So the, the theme in that, right off the bat, is of man's intellect dominating nature. That there's nothing that brain and willpower can't achieve. Even the elements. Even the very elements themselves. I love it. It's, yeah, it's, it's just like that 
oh, I, I don't even know the that dominance, right? It's that theme of human dominance or of human dominion over the planet, and specifically the the brain being the centerpiece of that. That if you can think hard enough, you can literally accomplish anything. Yeah, cunning and organization, modern science. It, I I love that. But of course, we have to recognize the there there is that strain of arrogance in there as well that I think we've talked about many times on this podcast. Well, I mean, he's a stodgy white guy. Yeah. H- hanging out in South America with I mean there there's the implied there's there's this implied theme that only this smart European man would be able to figure this out. Right. That the these kind of uh lower class of mental acuity that lives here. They they couldn't do this, but Leiningen could. Leiningen can. Believe in Leiningen. And actually, there's a part later on where uh, he's gathered all of his workers around him. And the author makes this note about how how the workers were scared of the ants, but they were more scared of Leiningen. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so he's, he's kind of got these preparations made. He's getting ready. And then it says, they came at noon the second day. It was announced by a stampede of animals. Timid and savage, hurtling past each other, jaguars and pumas flashing by nimble stags of the pampas, bulky tapirs, no longer hunters, themselves hunted, outpacing fleet kinkajous, maddened herds of cattle, heads lowered, nostrils snorting, rushing through tribes of loping monkeys, chattering in a dementia of terror. Then followed the creeping and springing denizens of bush and steppe, big and little rodents, snakes and lizards. I really enjoy his writing. Oh, it's yeah, it's, it's just a, that paints it, a picture, doesn't it? it? It you you can really see this kind of this horde of animals just tearing through the jungle in fear, chattering in a dementia of terror. <laughs> That's fantastic. God. And um the thing you need to understand about these ants is that the the premise of the story is that they leave nothing uneaten in their wake. It's like if you were to just take a vat of acid and spread it across the land. That's what he's characterizing these ants as. They just eat everything. Foliage, animals. It all disappears with the ants. Any biologic just gets stripped bare. And so that that is the announcement of the rival of the ants. And that's what he's got to look forward to. So he he makes these, as I said, he makes these preparations for his defenses. And we get a little bit of a description here. And it says, he describes the defenses as... On the western border of his property, he's got this river, essentially, this wide river that runs north to south. And then he has built a three-legged perimeter around his plantation that forms a square. So he has this river on one side, and then around his plantation, he has this perimeter of a canal, basically, that he can uh, reroute the water of the river through and flood, basically like a moat, for when these ants come. And then on the interior even closer in he has this second perimeter of a cement made trough which it has pipes from the uh gasoline tanks that pump directly into it so as a last ditch effort if everything goes to hell he can dump the gasoline into this cement trough going around his his plantation but that's it those are his two main defenses he figures that with those he should be able to tide he should be able to stem the tide of this overwhelming onslaught of ants. He gets into this a little bit. So now that the ants have arrived, he sets the scene for where this conflict is going to take place. 
And he says, The southern stretch of ditch was nearly three miles long. From its center, one could survey the entire countryside. This was destined to be the scene of the outbreak of war between Lanningen's brain and 20 square miles of life-destroying ants. Over the range of hills, as far as the eye could see, crept a darkening hem, ever longer and broader, until the shadow spread across the slope from east to west, then downwards, downwards, uncannily swift, and all the green herbage of that wide vista was being mown as by a giant sickle, leaving only the vast, moving shadow, extending, deepening, and moving rapidly nearer. So Leinigan is standing at this southernmost ditch that he has, and this is what he's seeing. He's seeing this 20-square-mile mass of darkness destroying everything in its path, coming directly for him and his plantation. That is just such a visceral image, that darkening hem creeping across the landscape. I love how it talks about being mown as by a giant sickle, as though it's like a manifestation of death itself. I, I think of it almost like in a, an eclipse. Yeah. Like the just darkness quickly descending across the landscape. And so seeing this, the author has to ask the question, hadn't this brain for once taken on more than it could manage? If the blighters decided to rush the ditch, fill it to the brim with their corpses, there'd still be more than enough to destroy every trace of that cranium of his. The planter's chin jutted. They hadn't gotten him yet, and he'd see to it they never would. While he could think it all, he'd flout both death and the devil. The hostile army was approaching in perfect formation. No human battalions, however well drilled, could ever hope to rival the precision of that advance. So he has a, his front, the area that he's kind of fighting these ants against, it's miles long. And I forget how many, I think he has something like 200 workers on this plantation. But 200 workers over miles worth of ditch just doesn't seem like that much. Oh, it's not enough. <laughs> it's not nearly enough. <laughs> I mean, talk about the Alamo. This is like the Brazilian Alamo. <laughs> I love the, uh, just the, I, the the can do itness. I I feel like this is a it's almost like a propaganda post from the 1940s. It's like his chin jutted, and while he could still think, he'd flout both death and the devil. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so again, they have this kind of perfect vista to watch the whole advance, and it says that the besieged were therefore able to contemplate at their leisure the thumb long reddish black long-legged insects. Some of the Indians believed they could see, too, intent on them, the brilliant, cold eyes and the razor-edged mandibles of this host of infinity. And and when he's saying host of infinity, he, he really is talking about, again, kind of that manifestation of death. It's, it's the vehicle that will carry you into the great beyond. It is nothing but a manifestation of destruction. The description of these things... Is terrifying. They are thumb long. They're they're not the ants that you see on the sidewalk. These are it's like an angry insect mouse. Yeah. <laughs> with with razor sharp jaws. That's real scary like. Oh yeah. Yeah. And and he, he makes a mention here about that that intent that the Indians believe they could see. And it says that It is not easy for the average person to imagine that an animal, 
not to mention an insect, can think. But now, both the European brain of Leiningen and the primitive brains of the Indians began to stir with the unpleasant foreboding that inside every single one of that deluge of insects dwelt a thought. And that thought was, ditch or no ditch, we'll get to your flesh. So a couple things there. We mentioned that kind of colonial narration and just that, you know, the primitive brains of the Indians. But the that idea that it's not easy for us to imagine animals thinking, obviously this is something that we've talked about before and, and I think that we're all pretty much on the same page that yes, animals can think and they may even have very complex interior lives that we don't quite have the capacity to understand. But imagining the the ant hive mind and how they can use, how they can move in unison and they use pheromones to communicate with each other and lay scent trails so they can follow them. This mass communication across this entire body can actually make it seem like this is a super organism composed it, of many individuals. It's moving as one. It's it's almost moving like a, a school of fish where the small movement on one end is perceived across the entire body of animals. Exactly. And so now you have this 20 square mile voracious organism that really does have just that one thought, yeah. which is consume. Uh, and when I think when you feel like when that becomes personal, when it's consume me, mm. that makes it even more scary. And scary indeed it is. And it goes on to say that even as it was, it could hardly be described as rosy, though the planter seemed quite unaware that death in a gruesome form was drawing closer and closer. As the war between his brain and the act of God reached its climax, the very shadow of annihilation began to pale to Leiningen, who now felt like a champion in a new Olympic game, a gigantic and thrilling contest, from which he was determined to emerge victor. He's enjoying himself. He's having a great time right at that precipice of death. And that's something that we've talked about before. I mean, he feels... It describes how he feels so alive and the shadow of death begins to pale because it's this great contest between him and the forces of nature. It, it's taking that, uh, it turns it into a challenge. Oh, it's exactly what it is. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It, it's a it's a game for him. He enjoys it. It's that, again, it's his brain versus the natural elements. And what happens is that that defense system that he set up, that perimeter of water actually works uh, for the the kind of first initial onslaught. The ants will try to cross the water and they get swept downstream. And the way the water flows, again, being routed from the river, it branches off from the river, diverts along the perimeter of the ditch, and then washes back into the river. So basically all the, rants that, the all of the ants that try to cross, they fall into the water and the perimeter ditch, and then they get swept out in the river. And it works really well. It's very effective, that that first go around. And he says that, he studied the wide belt of water between them and the plantation, and for a moment almost regretted that the fight had ended so soon and so simply. In the comforting, matter-of-fact light of morning, it seemed to him now that the ants hadn't the ghost of a chance to cross the ditch. Even if they plunged headlong into it on all three fronts at once, the force of the now powerful current would inevitably sweep them away. He had got quite a thrill out of the fight, a pity it was already over. Just really having a grand old time. Enjoying. I can just imagine him contemplating this army of ants. 
with a shit-eating grin on his face, thinking that his water ditch, his moat, had protected his castle from these invaders. However, we are soon to find out that that was a bit premature. Bump the brakes. <laughs> oh, I'm putting that idea right to the fucking windshield. <laughs> the far bank of the ditch... So he goes to a different section of his perimeter to kind of check in and see how things are going. And it says that there, on the far bank of the ditch, it fairly swarmed with industrious insects. But instead of eating the leaves there and then, they were merely gnawing through the stalks, so that a thick green shower fell steadily to the ground. No doubt, they were vittling columns sent out to obtain provender for the rest of the army. The discovery did not surprise Leinigan. He did not need to be told that ants are intelligent that certain species even use other as milk cows, watchdogs, and slaves. He was well aware of their power of adaptation, their sense of discipline, and their marvelous talent for organization. However, he's mistaken. He thinks that, the, he thinks that what's happening is this wing of the army is in this little forested area, and it's chopping down branches and leaves to feed the rest of the group, to kind of provide these... Pro- to, to get these provisions... So that the rest of the army can eat while it's trying to figure out how to cross the stitch or what the next move is going to be. Napoleon, an army travels on its stomach. That's right. Yeah. Um, and the uh, the themes, the the militaristic themes throughout this entire story. I mean, the the description of the fronts and the 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 left and the right wings of, of the armies and all of that stuff is just throughout the entire story. Victualing columns. <laughs> I love that. But, but. He realizes that his initial assessment is mistaken. And it says... Not bread. Boats. Yes. Each single leaf, pulled or pushed by dozens of toiling insects, was borne straight to the edge of the ditch. Even as Macbeth watched the approach of Burnham Wood... Even as Macbeth watched the approach of Burnham Wood in the hands of his enemies... Leiningen saw the tamarind wood move nearer and nearer in the mandibles of the ants. I, that's just such a great reference to Shakespeare. I had to leave that in there. That's from the end of Macbeth. It was prophesied that his death would come when Burnham Wood moved to the castle by the witches. And he thought that he was perfectly safe because the wood can't the woods can't move closer to the castle. Well, in the story, what happens is the army that's coming to battle him goes into the woods and starts cutting down trees and bushes and shrubs and they use it as camouflage and they move forward and closer and closer to the castle so that it really does look like the entire forest is approaching the castle. So he goes and he kind of surveys the rest of his defenses and it says that then as he rode past the stretch where the ants had failed to cross the day before, he witnessed a brief but impressive scene. Down the slope of the distant hill, there came towards him a singular being, writhing rather than running, an animal-like blackened statue with shapeless head and four quivering feet that knuckled under almost ceaselessly. When the creature reached the far bank of the ditch and collapsed opposite Leiningen, he recognized it as a pompous stag, covered over and over with ants. With a shot from his rifle, Leiningen put it out of its misery. Then he pulled out his watch. He hadn't a second to lose, but for life itself, he could not have denied his curiosity the satisfaction of knowing how long the ants would take. For personal reasons, so to speak. After six minutes, the white polished bones alone remained. Six minutes. To devour an entire deer. 
Yeah, you're thinking maybe 180, 200 pounds. So man-sized. All the flesh. It, anything that's not just calcium. Stripped down to bone. Gone. And, and, and he, there's a mention, too, of how some of his plantation workers try to escape to the river, but they're piranhas in the river. Yeah. It's like they're trapped between these two. It's like crocodiles, piranhas, or ants. You're getting eaten alive either way, no matter what you do. But uh, that that imagery of the this blackened creature, which must have just seemed like it was, you know, almost an apparition coming up out of the ants themselves because there's no made way to distinguish it. Yeah, yeah, just made of ants. And then falling down and being consumed by them in six minutes. That's the fate that Leinigan has to look forward to. That is the fate of him and everybody on his plantation if he can't defend it appropriately. Yeah, the the comment of for personal reasons. For personal reasons. So to speak. <laughs> and that that not being able to deny his curiosity, again, we go back to the that theme of his intellect and science, where the foundation of science really is questions and curiosity. So now, even in the jaws of death, his mind can't help but be a little bit scientific and a little bit curious of, well, if I am to get eaten alive by ants, I wonder how long that will take. The ants finally do make it across the water ditch. And this is a crisis situation for everyone there. They they retreat, they fall back, and they use that. Now, now, their last, now their last piece of defense is the barrier that they have built that they can fill with gasoline. And it says that after they made that retreat and the ants are now masked on just they've got that one last border to cross... It says, at first it seemed that the petrol trench would serve its purpose, but it didn't actually work out. What happens is, their stormtroops swarmed down the concrete side, scrambled over the supporting surface of twigs and leaves, and impelled these over the few remaining streaks of open petrol until they reached the other side. Then they began to climb up this to make straight for the helpless garrison. So what's happened is, the ants have massed, they've managed to cross over the water, and now they're basically pulling the same trick that they did before, where they're carrying over the, the, the sticks and the branches and the, the twigs and the leaves, and they're building more bridges. And so now they're able, some of the ants are now able to get across the petrol, and they can actually start climbing up the, this little small embankment towards the plantation, where basically everybody is now waiting to die. And it said that it says that it was obvious, however, that this last resource meant only the postponement of defeat and death. A few of the peons fell on their knees and began to pray. Others, shrieking insanely, fired their revolvers at the black advancing masses, as if they felt their despair was pitiful enough to sway fate itself to mercy. So we've got the ants crossing over the, the petrol, and he basically throws a match into it. I imagine slow motion, movie-like, the match flying through the air, and then landing in this open spot of petrol, and then a giant wall of flame that just kills all of the ants that are in that that are in that trench and singes a good many that are on the other side too. But it also consumes all the petrol in the ditch. And so every time he does this, he has to refill the petrol. And he he does it until he runs out. And and it says that it seemed like this strategy would work if only they had an unlimited supply of petrol. Because, again, he's just getting overwhelmed by the sheer numbers of black ants. And he, he's at a loss now. He doesn't know what to do. He's, he's run out of petrol. The ants are coming. He doesn't know what his next 
he's out of defenses. Everything that he had constructed, his entire, his intellect was now exhausted. Then, out of the inferno of his bewilderment, rose a terrifying inspiration. Yes, one hope remained, and one alone. It might be possible to dam the great river completely, so that its waters would not fill only the water ditch, but overflow into the entire gigantic saucer of land in which lay the plantation. It was possible, yes, if one could only get to the dam. A distance of nearly two miles lay between the ranch house and the weir. Two miles of ants. Those two peons had managed only uh, a couple of the, the workers had tried to run. They couldn't take it anymore, and they just get instantly consumed by the ants. It says that those two peons had managed only a fifth of that distance at the cost of their lives. Was there an Indian daring enough after that to run the gauntlet five times as far? Hardly likely. And if there were, his prospect of getting back was almost nil. No, there was only one thing for it. He'd have to make the attempt himself. He might just as well be running as sitting still anyway when the ants finally got him. Besides, there was a bit of a chance. Perhaps the ants weren't so almighty after all. Perhaps he had allowed the mass suggestion of that evil black throng to hypnotize him, just as a snake fascinates and overpowers. He pulled on high leather boots, drew heavy gauntlets over his hands, and stuffed the spaces between breeches and boots, gauntlets and arms, shirt and neck, with rags soaked in petrol. With close-fitting mosquito goggles, he shielded his eyes, knowing too well the ants' dodge of first robbing the victim of their sight. Finally, he plugged his nostrils and ears with cotton wool and let the peons drench his clothes with petrol. So, this is his outfit. This is his... the thing he's going to try to wear to prevent the ants from getting on and in him. It's a suit of ant armor. I feel like he could have really used a roll of duct tape. Oh, duct tape would have been perfect for this thing. Yeah, absolutely. Of course, they probably would have just chewed right through that duct tape. They just want to get that sweet, sweet meat beneath. Mm. <laughs> Real tasty. The eyes first. Oh, it, some, God. Always the eyes. eyes. Why? Some, between... Fuck nature. Just leave it be. <laughs> between Hitchcock's birds and mm. Leineken's ants, they always go for the eyes first. And the ravens, remember? Yeah, right. The raven murder, pecking out the eyes. Fuck. It's just brutal. So... He's, he's readying himself. This is like their, their last chance. And he's standing right there at the edge of the ants. And he launches himself into them. He ran in long, equal strides with only one thought, one sensation in his being. He must get through. He dodged all trees and shrubs. Except for the split seconds his soles touched the ground, the ant should have no opportunity to alight on him. Apparently the salve was some use after all. Not until he reached halfway did he feel ants under his clothes and a few on his face. Mechanically, in his stride, he struck at them, scarcely conscious of their bites. He saw he was drawing appreciably nearer the weir. The distance grew less and less, sank to five hundred, three, two, one hundred yards. Then he was at the weir and gripping the ant-hold wheel. Hardly had he seized it when a horde of infuriated ants flowed over his hands, arms, and shoulders. He started the wheel. Before it turned once on its axis, the swarm covered his face. Lining and strained like a madman, his lips pressed tight. 
if he opened them to draw breath. Ugh. This this makes me shiver. Oh, talk about your skin crawling with ants. Ugh. Yeah, and and you can just imagine as soon as he touches that wheel covered with ants, they just flow just, up his arm. Oh, it's 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 almost like like a liquid. It's this living, hungry liquid that fills the shape of its container that flows over things and can stick to it. And it's because they're ants. They I think of them as being black and oily and uh, just that in that that little pokey. The small spikes as each yeah. each leg pokes. Ugh, I don't like it. <laughs> I'm not a fan. I mean, it's it's horrifying, right? It's it's grotesque. But he does manage to to turn the wheel to open up the floodgate, and so now that's accomplished. All that's left for him is to try to get back. No big deal. He's just completely covered in ants. It's. I mean, he's now he's now his own version of the pampas stack. He is. From head to foot, covered with ants. So he's try he's trying to run back, and it says that one of the creatures bit him just below the rim of his goggles. He managed to tear it away, but the agony of the bite and its etching acid drilled into the eye nerves. He saw now through circles of fire into a milky mist. Then he ran for a time almost blinded, knowing that if he once tripped and fell, the old Indian's brew didn't seem much good. It weakened the poison a bit, but didn't get rid of it. His heart pounded as if it would burst. Blood roared in his ears. A giant's fist battered his lungs. Then, all at once he saw, starkly clear and huge, and right before his eyes, furred with ants, towering and swaying in its death agony, the pampas stag, in six minutes gnawed to the bones. God, he couldn't die like that. And something outside him seemed to drag him to his feet. He tottered. He began to stagger forward again. Leiningen, at the moment he made that leap through the flames, lost consciousness for the first time in his life. As he lay there, with glazing eyes and lacerated face, he appeared a man returned from the grave. The peons rushed to him, stripped off his clothes, tore away the ants from a body that seemed almost one open wound. In some places, the bones were showing. They carried him into the ranch house. His use of metaphor, the giant's fist battered his lungs. The, the writing is really fantastic. Oh, it's so good. And the he appeared a man returned from the grave. And really, he I mean, he had run into the mouth of death, the very mouth of death, and had come back. I mean, he jumps through flames at the end. <laughs> Which is, I mean, I mean style points. <laughs> it's like a John Woo film. Lonigan <laughs> <laughs> versus the ants. They thought they could get his family. They were wrong. <laughs> but it, so even covered head to toe in thick clothes, soaked in petrol, having taken this medicine man's elixir, having drank this uh, this kind of liquid that was supposed to help calm the toxin. Even with all of this, the ants are in his clothing, have eaten through, and he looks like one giant wound. They have consumed his skin. And in some places, down to the bone. The pain that that... I mean... Because that's... Those are ants taking small little chunks at a time. It, small little bites. It's not like he... It's not like a piece was evolved. 
Yeah. These are... This wasn't a swipe with a claw. They were eating him one small razor-sharp mandible bite at a time. He felt every little bit of that. Oh, God. Ugh. You know, so this what I this part right here, this whole him running through the army of ants. What I what I really love is how it's transitioning from it, the, the whole first part of the story is about his intellect. It's about his brain. And in the end though, what gets him to where he needs to be and back, it's his will. It's that combination of that that strength of mind, but strength of will that I will not fail. It, I will not give up. This becomes a so he describes himself as uh, it's kind of an Olympian type event where it's a physical event, but you you don't get through this on just physical fitness. No, this is you have to have the heart to overcome. Well, and if you look at the if you the the numbers two miles there and two miles back, he ran he sprinted four miles. In heavy clothes, in South America, in the South American jungle, covered in gasoline. Yeah, breathing in gasoline fumes the entire time. I mean, shit, if that doesn't get you high, fuck. <laughs> maybe he wasn't feeling it. Yeah, maybe he did feel it. It's like, hey, I'm fine. It's good. I don't know. <laughs> I'll open the shit out some gas. And, well, and then on the way back, he had to keep his mouth closed. Yeah, because they would crawl inside. they'd crawl inside his mouth. Eat him from the inside. Oh, God. <laughs> so so he gets he gets back onto his side of the plantation. There's this wall of flame separating the, the plantation from the ants. It's like their last little bit of petrol. And it says, As the curtain of flames lowered, one could see in place of the illimitable host of ants an extensive vista of water. The thwarted river had swept over the plantation, carrying with it the entire army. The water had collected and mounted in the great saucer, while the ants had in vain attempted to reach the hill on which stood the ranch house. The girdle of flames held them back. And so imprisoned between water and fire, they had been delivered into the annihilation that was their god. And near the farther mouth of the water ditch, where the stone mole had its second gap, the ocean swept the lost battalions into the river to vanish forever. He beat back an abomination of God. Delivered into the annihilation that was their God. Oh, that line right there really got me. And this being trapped between the fire and the water. It, in a way, it's this, he, he had used two fundamental elements to trap and destroy what was essentially another element. He had used these two parts of nature to fight and combat this other part of nature in a way affecting what he felt he would do. And and back to that very first line where he talks about he could control the very elements. I mean, this he does. He does. And and but again, the important part here is it's not with his mind alone. The mind alone is not sufficient. There must also be action. There must also be, oh man. You know what the most popular Nazi propaganda movie was? It's called Triumph des Willen, which means the triumph of the will. I know we said we were going to get into this, but I just felt that was worth mentioning. I just <laughs> That just popped into my mind. But it is. It's the triumph of the will. It's the He's got the brain. He's got the heart. 
And when you put those two together, that is when human beings can accomplish amazing things. So you put that together with this underlying subtext of uh, the, all the biblical reference. Yeah. Where not only do you have a physical ability, you have the mental acuity, and you have the the will and the heart, but you have this underlying godlike or or biblical reasoning. I mean, this is Noah's flood. It it washes evil away. Yeah, and his his lone plantation is his own ark. Yeah, truly. So he he makes it to the other side of the makes it to the other side of the the flames. The they strip him down. They get all the ants off of him. They they carry him into the house. And the last part here. Now they thronged around him. One question in every face: Would he recover? He won't die," said the old man who had banished him. If he doesn't want to. I told you I'd come back, he murmured, even if I am a bit streamlined. <laughs> he grinned and shut his eyes. He slept. That's so fucking badass. God. <laughs> even if I am, I told you I'd come back. You know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of... Um, the Terminator. No. <laughs> in order to get licensed to carry OC spray, basically pepper spray for the military police... You have to get sprayed with it, and then you do a baton fight-through course. And getting sprayed with that was was awful. That felt fucking terrible. It was like your your face was melting. It was on fire, and and it felt so good when the breeze would blow on it. And then it would immediately just get so much worse. It was awful. But when I got sprayed... The the way it happens is that the guy stands a couple feet away from you, sprays you across the forehead, and then it drips down into your face. And everybody is standing in formation, watching it happen, waiting for their turn. Almost best to go first. <laughs> really, it, it almost is. <laughs> and so I got sprayed, and it just hits me, and it is fucking awful. And I just turned over to everybody, and I'm like, you know, it's not so bad. <laughs> kind of feels like a nice exfoliant. <laughs> and I am just dying on the inside, you know, but... Like, you got to put in that brave face, right? You can't never let them see you bleed. And so, oh, but there was this one chick who, she had, like, gone to the beach the weekend before and had this sunburn. Oh, no. And they said, you you do not need to do this. You can take a recycle and just roll into the next class to, it, to do it then. It probably causes second-degree burns. And she was like, no, it's fine. I'll do it. And they sprayed her. And she fucking hit the ground immediately, screaming in pain. I think she had to go to the hospital. It was it was oh, it, it was not terrible. a good situation. Yeah, it was real bad. Oh, it sounds terrible. <laughs> and the worst part about it is uh, when you do go to the cleaning station, so your face is just melting, and then you oh what was it? Uh, oh, so the, I remember this. It's like what what does it feel like to get sprayed with OC? And they said, it's like bobbing for French fries in a deep fryer. Oh, no. And then somebody was like, what does it feel like to get deconned? Which is a, the decontamination process. And it's like, going to the bottom for that last fry. <laughs> <laughs> because so what happens is at, you get to the end of the course. And then you need to go through the decontamination phase. And you, they have this five-gallon bucket of water in Johnson's baby soap. And you put your face in there. And it feels like 
all of the angels of heaven have ascended down and are gently caressing your face and saying, shh, it's okay. It's okay. It's all better now. And then as soon as you pull your face out of the water, they're actually demons and they're clawing at your eyeballs. It's just, there's no relief at all. And then some people forget that uh, when they get home that night, they take a shower. They it's, for, it's in your hair. It's in your it's, hair. It's, it's still on your body because it's an oil. And they will stand in the shower and it will drip down their front, down their chest, onto their junk. So, oh. And then they're in a world of hurt. So I've, uh, I've helped decontaminate people who have been shot with pepper balls, which is the same idea. It's an irritant that's in a powdered form or liquid powdered form that's shot out of paintball guns. And police use them for crowd control and riot control, uh, sometimes as a non-lethal weapon when they're, they're trying to take down an individual. The problem is that you end up with this, this powdery substance over everything. And doing decon, I've put on an N95 particulate mask. I'll have goggles on. And still, you take off someone's clothes and you just get these little dust plumes. Oh, it's nasty And you, stuff. you breathe it in. You start coughing, and that makes it worse, and then you're wheezing. And that that's just after the fact. That's not getting smoked in the face by one of these things. Yeah. <laughs> it's just it, miserable. It sticks with you for a while. Your your skin turns red. Your eyes water and burn. And again, that that's a sec, it's like the secondhand smoke version of it. Yeah. I can assure you, it's pretty fucking awful. I, I, so I also had to do like basic training. Uh the, you also go through the, the gas chamber, which is tear gas. And I did that, I think I've done that twice now in my life. I would do the, the tear gas chamber any day of the week over getting OC'd again. Because the thing is, it's like the, the tear gas chamber sucks a lot, but the OC stays with you for like a day. There's just no escaping it. It's awful. But you know, the thing that I took away from that is, so when you get sprayed, it's not just you get sprayed and you got to deal with it. You get sprayed and then you have to do a fight through course where you've got the the man in the red jumpsuit where you've got to use your baton. You got to do takedowns. You got to like actually fight your way through this this obstacle course basically. And and everybody in the class did, even with this noxious stimulus present. And what I took away from that was that you know pepper spray is not the be all end all answer. It's just something to think about if if you yourself are thinking about using pepper spray as a self defense uh, tool. It is somebody who's hopped up on adrenaline who is trying to hurt you. It may not deter them. So just something to be aware of and keep in mind. It, he, he describes, Lanigan describes the, what does he say? He gets bit right underneath the, uh, underneath his goggles. He feels the agony of the bite. It's etching acid drilled into the eye nerves. He now saw through circles of fire into a milky mist. He still continued. Yeah, like he, he he was losing his vision, but he was still able to keep running. Still made it back to his plantation. Uh, well, in fairness, barely, but well, but st- he does st- make it. Streamlined, streamlined. <laughs> well, what is it? Uh, oh, right. It, I didn't I didn't include this part, but I loved it where uh, when he's about to run into the whole army of ants, he's like, "All right, lads, I'll see you on the other side when I'm done with my slimming diet." <laughs> Because <laughs> he knows what's coming. Yeah. But again, it's that it's that sense of humor in the face of almost certain death. It's that cavalier, jaunty, devil-may-care attitude. 
there's a great story of a British pilot uh, in a commercial jet that hits a, I, I don't know if they have a engine failure or terrible weather. Something happens where there's a catastrophic loss of altitude. And afterwards, the, the pilot gets on the intercom to the cabin and says, pardon, we've hit a spot of bother. <laughs> Fucking Brits. <laughs> oh my. A spot of bother. <laughs> So that is the end of the story of Leiningen versus the Ants. Eventually, he wins the day. He makes a, a pretty good sacrifice. But with his brain and his intellect and his will, he conquers this force of nature. And this is just such a impressive story. And the, descrip- the descriptions that he gives, they're so dramatic. But we wanted to take a, a, a more critical examination. Seeing as one of the themes here is science, we want to take a more scientific appraisal of this story and how realistic is it? Yeah, infuse a dose of reality into it. And the ants that he's talking about in this story, based on his descriptions and based on their behaviors, what he's talking about are army ants. And I think it's an interesting aside to mention that the study of ants is called myrmecology. In the Iliad, the troops that were led by Achilles, the greatest warrior in Greek history, were known as the Myrmidons. And the parallels between warriors and ants in Western thought have existed since the time of Homer. So this concept of army ants and how they have these colonies and they go on raids and they bivouac when they sleep, this all of these themes are ever-present in both ants and in... And there was a mention that some philosophers, like social philosophers in the 1800s, felt that ants were the most perfectly functioning form of society where everybody had their place and everybody acted for the good of the hive, et cetera, et cetera. And so they tried to model human social structures on the social structures of ants, which obviously was doomed to fail because we are not from the same genetic tree. We're, we're not... We're not evolved from the same from similar species. We're not insects. We're not insects. But the type of ants that are being described in the story are army ants. And the features of the ants, as described in the story, are not entirely accurate. Firstly, and I know this is going to be disappointing, army ants do not grow to be the size of a human thumb. You say disappointing, I say thank Christ. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, I, I guess that is something to be grateful for, sure. <laughs> But that distinction of, of being able to grow to the size of a thumb belongs to a different South American ant genus, which is the Dinopanera. And they can grow to upwards of about 1.6 inches in size. So that's, I mean, looking at my thumb, that's about right. That's about the size of a thumb. That's a big fucking ant. Ginormous. It, it's for the technical term, yes. Yeah. However, again, somewhat relievingly, Those ants that are about that size, they only exist in colonies of of about 100 individuals. Which seems about 99 too many. (laughs) It seems like 101 too many. (laughs) But you're not going to see them in a 20 square... But if you think about that, the size of your thumb, 20 square miles of insects that size that just consume, that is horrifying to contemplate. It it makes me shiver. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, And hey, this is not to in any way downplay the ferocity of army ants because they are voracious and they do indeed have these en masse raids where they scavenge for all different types of food 
And this includes dissecting, while they're alive, various types of animals, including scorpions. Oh, you're you're a land crab with a stingy, pointy, venomous stinger? Now we're going to eat you too. Me and my homie's going <laughs> to... We got something for that. It's called eat your eyeballs first. <laughs> Just want to get my ants and do ant-like things, bro. Can't, can't, can't kill what you can't see. <laughs> There's that part where he says that some of the Indians believe that they could see too intent on them. The brilliant cold eyes. And the the funny thing about that is that army ants are actually basically blind. They cannot see for shit. What they do is they they sense their prey by movement. Which is a very effective strategy for them. Because when this one ant, let's say, comes across a creature, a scorpion for example and the scorpion moves away, then that ant now releases a pheromone that triggers other ants to swarm. The more that scorpion struggles, the more it gets swarmed by ants. Well, and the more, I feel like in that sense, the more that it moves, the more the hive or that group knows where it is. Exactly. Because they can't see, but they can feel. And so they they can feel that animal moving, that, that insect, that scorpion, whatever it is, and then they just swarm. And that it, the man, the description is absolutely correct with their razor-sharp mandibles. They basically go in and they joint that thing. <laughs> yeah. Now, but that being said, army ants do not attack larger size animals that would be the size of humans or stags or cows or anything like that. They generally stick to things that are the size of insects. But it is just to point out that they are omnivorous and they will eat any sort of shrubbery as well as insects that they can effectively take down. And speaking of that that swarming, when the colony is at rest, they form these massive clumps called bivouacs where all of the ants in the colony form around the queen and the larvae. And depending on the size of the colony, there could be Anywhere from 200,000 to 700,000 ants in this single bivouac clump. There's so many of them that this conglomeration forms its own microclimate. Yeah, that makes sense. Which keeps it, well, it keeps the interior of the bivouac at a constant temperature for the developing larvae. Yeah. But even the exterior still manages to keep its own like temperature range constant. It's this living ball of ants. Yeah, half a million segmented insects. With razor-sharp mandibles crawling all over each other. Just trying to keep the queen and her larvae, her children, alive. Oh, <laughs> God. So, of course, the most striking passage in the story is the, the death of this stag. And, and it says in the story that it was killed and cleaned to the bone in six minutes. And how realistic is this? Not very. There is video evidence of fire ants, for example, which is a species essentially unrelated to the Brazilian army ants, stripping a dead frog to its bones in about 12 hours. And while fire ants are much smaller than army ants, the description of the story of them taking down a live stag and then cleaning to the bone in six minutes, that's essentially fantasy. But it, there's, it's no less a powerful image for that. So I think we've all seen the time-lapse photographs of insects cleaning a, a you know, carcass down to bone. But the idea of doing it 
in real time, not over five minutes of time-lapse photography of a couple of days, but in real time over six minutes. I'd love to see that. Would you, though? Behind plexiglass. <laughs> I don't think they give a fuck about the plexiglass, man. I think they'd just be like, all right. <laughs> I think really what's going on here is that the the author, uh, he obviously has some sort of knowledge of the ants of South America. And I think what he's done is he has essentially made a hybrid of a couple different types of species and formulated them into this conceptual ant that he then uses for the story. Because there are some fascinating ants that live in South America. And I think that that arguably a more frightening ant that lives in the jungles of South America is the bullet ant. Well, why do they call it the bullet ant, Trevor? Oh, <laughs> hold on to your horses, bud. We'll get, hold on to your stags, bud. We'll get there. So the, the bullet ant, uh, the scientific name is Paraponera clavata. And this ant is renowned for having a more painful sting than any other animal on the planet. Yeah, something that's not going to kill you, but it might. It will make you wish you were dead. <laughs> and and how do we know that it has the most painful sting? Well, enter science. Turns out there's this entomologist named Justin Schmidt who created the Schmidt Sting Scale. The Schmidt Sting Scale is a rating of four different categories with one being the least worst sting and four being the absolute worst. And how did he arrive at this scale? I'm glad you asked. He's been stung by 83 different animals with an accumulated sting count of over a thousand. So this is where brilliance and madness kind of converge. Oh, it's a fine line. (laughs) Now, I do want to mention, so I I looked this guy up. uh, I checked out some interviews with him. This was not intentional. He didn't didn't intentionally... (laughs) But after a while, he'd accumulated enough knowledge about different things because he, he's an entomologist. He works with these animals. He's, he has accumulated enough knowledge. He's like, ah, let's just follow this thread and see where it goes. I can name it after myself. Brilliant. <laughs> Perfect. And so he does. But these things that he's received, these animals, they include the bullet ant. And he has categorized the pain of each of the stings, all in the name of science. So... I told you that one was the least worst and four was like the absolute most awful. The final rating for the bullet ant is a four plus. This one goes to 11. (laughs) Turn it up to 11. (laughs) He describes the pain of this sting as pure, intense, brilliant pain. Like walking over flaming charcoal with a three inch nail embedded in your heel. And so for reference, for, for most of us that have felt a sting, a yellow jacket sting is about a two. Yeah. And I looked at some other sources that said that the, the bullet ant sting is 30 times more painful than the, the sting of a yellow jacket. So just to throw you know, kind of a, a different number there, but 30 times more painful. But why? What's special about this tiny little organism that, that makes it so painful? Well, when a bullet ant stings you, it has this retractable syringe-like lance at the end of its abdomen. And, and it stabs you with it and injects you with this powerful neuropeptide called panerotoxin. And so panerotoxin works by blocking the ability of your smooth muscle nerves to turn off. Basically what it does is it, it takes 
each of your nerves that are capable of feeling pain, it excites them as much as they can possibly be excited and then makes it impossible for them to turn off. So it's like cranking up to 11 and then ripping the knob off. There's just no changing it after that. The, the four plus full body pain that we're talking about, that comes from a single ant sting. Just one ant stinging you has this most incredible, powerful pain. And one ant contains just one microgram of venom. That is 0.000001 grams of this venom to basically make you wish that you had never been born. They call it a bullet ant because it feels like you've been shot. Some people describe it that way. It has the pain of a gunshot wound. You know, we were talking about initiation rites on an earlier podcast, like rites of passage into manhood. Yeah. Flayed skin, big pokey stabby things. Exactly, yeah. Hanging from flesh. Sure. The huge. Saturday night. Typical Saturday night. (laughs) Well, the Sateri Mawe tribe of Brazil use bullet ants in their traditional initiations. So what they do is they go out in the forest and they collect all of these all of these bullet ants and they bring them back to the ceremonial site. And the the shaman there have this sedative brew, basically, this bowl of herbs that they've mixed together that essentially paralyzes the ants. And so they mix all the ants into this, this liquid brew and they fall asleep. And they weave these basically oven mitts of reeds and and they're all it's all crisscross in this lattice work and what they'll do is they'll pick up the bullet ant and they'll turn it so the stinger is facing on the inside of the glove and they'll put it right in between the crack of these lattice works so it sits at that junction of the abdomen body and the rest of the ant so it can't go anywhere it's just stuck right in between but it's stingers on the inside the stinger is all on the inside and so they, they weave these ants into this glove. And then about an hour later... When they've woken up. All these ants wake up. And they are pissed. <laughs> they are super pissed. Because, you know, they're just chilling in the jungle, having a regular day. And then all of a sudden, they're fucking stuck in an oven mitt. Ants doing ant things. <laughs> I'd be real pissed. <laughs> and the, the initiation rite is... The young man goes up to this, this bar, basically. And he sets his arms on the bar with his hands extending outwards. And they come over and they take these oven mitts and they put them onto both of his hands. And he has to keep them on his hands for 10 minutes, being stung by these 40, 50 bullet ants. And just one bullet ant is what we described the pain of the sting. Imagine the pain of 40 or 50 of them all stinging your hands. And on your hands. Uh, and and it says that so again if you if you recall the mechanism of action, it's essentially this paralytic. And so the whole hand, the both arms basically turn into these flaming stumps of pain that are completely paralyzed and can't be used for anything. And this pain continues for the next twenty four hours. Oh my god! And you would think, okay, well, wow, that's that's a hell of an initiation, right? As it turns out. In order for a young man to become a fully-fledged member of the tribe, they have to undergo this process 20 times. Be like, I'm just going to move to Florida. (laughs) Where's that bush plane come in with metal trinkets and pieces of glass? I think I'm going to self-identify as a member of a different tribe today. (laughs) 
I'm not I'm not feeling the whole ceremonial right right now. I don't, maybe maybe a different time. Catch so, me next week. So I, I traveled to Ecuador after I graduated undergrad, and we went into the Oriente, which is the Amazon River basin, into the jungle. And our guide at this eco lodge we stayed at, we did a couple of walks into the forest, like basically hikes just into the jungle. We saw bullet ants. I stayed away from them because I did not want to get stung. He described that the the shamans or the kind of local medicine man there, they would sting themselves repeatedly over and over again, and they would build up some sort of uh, resilience uh, to the toxin. Almost like folks that work around bees sometimes, you know, purposely get stung, and then they, they build up a resistance to the effect of the toxin. And he said it they could... Instead of ending up with like fever and sweats for a day, they just get stung and it was like a mosquito bite. It was no big deal. I wasn't about to invest the the, the time or effort really into trying to do that. I was terrified. Didn't didn't seem worth it to you? No, nah, I mean just in the moment. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that we did come across this other kind of ant. I don't remember what kind it was, but the where its nest or hive was. There was an area in the jungle on the ground that was completely devoid of life, and I forget, he had like a colloquial name for it. It was like the, you know, the devil's tree or something. But you could see the hive, you could see the opening down into the ground, and then around it, almost in a perfect circle, the ground was picked bare. It was just soil. There was no living matter, nothing left, no vegetation, no bark, no trees, no bush. Nothing. There was almost a perfect circle around it that was completely bare of life. And they would pick that clean. It was wild to see. It's amazing to think about what the, the, the sheer power of volume of numbers can do. And, and it may even be outside the grasp of our imagination to, to think what these, what these ants do. But then think about something like the pyramids. It's amazing what can be accomplished when you just throw human death and suffering at something until it's accomplished. When you delegitimized human life and you just see people as tools, as ants, if Uh, you will. Yeah, Yeah, just just expendable things. And that's exactly what happens with with the hive is that they have no self-concern. It's this super organism sacrificing parts of itself all the time for the accomplishment of the greater good. It's almost why it's worthwhile to think of ants as a collective organism as opposed to an individual piece. Yeah. Fortunately... We don't have to worry about these kinds of ants too much up here where we are. I feel like I'm still going to worry about it. <laughs> you know what we get you for Christmas? An ant farm. <laughs> but I did want to use this story to kind of, as a springboard for us to talk about insects and how we deal with insects when we go hiking, when we go camping, when we go hunting. When, we, when we're out there in the world, insects are a real stress. They're a big deal. And I think one of the most annoying, one of the most vile creatures out there that just, it really bothers me, the mosquito. Oh! Yeah. That was fucking awful. <laughs> that was terrible. <laughs> the, when, when you say bugs are a stress, we used to call it bug stress. When we were in the backcountry on course or just on a, a, on a recreational trip, the the ability for bugs, mosquitoes especially, to just ruin you, to put you 
into a whimpering catatonia. <laughs> They're miserable. And I understand how mosquitoes fit into the ecological order and they feed everything, like the whole world. And blah, blah, blah. blah, 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 blah. Mosquitoes. <laughs> they could all go away. <laughs> Fuck. Just kill them all. I can think of two times specifically. One is a Boy Scout doing a wilderness survival merit badge where we'd made a some sort of you know, natural shelter that we had to sleep out in overnight. The mosquitoes were so bad, we started a smudge fire, like a smoky little fire inside of our shelter we created like a, a a smoke lodge just to keep the bugs out it didn't work <laughs> it didn't work and then on another i had a course you know, later early 20s i was working in wyoming and i hadn't brought a head net a mosquito head net uh, i regretted that decision i'll bet you did and if i was fishing in the evening it's high alpine lakes. We do fly fishing in the afternoons or evenings. I had to wear, even though it was July, August, I would have to wear wind pants. I would have to wear a wind shirt. I would tuck my pants into my socks. I would tuck my wind shirt into my wind pants. I would wish that I had gloves on and I didn't have a head net. So at one point in the afternoon, I put a stuff sack over my head just to get away from them and still... That sound, you're in, even inside of your tent, that sound, it, it bores into oh. your soul. When I die and go to hell, <laughs> that, is, that is the noise that I will hear for all of eternity. I am sure of it. It is just, it, you know what it is? It's the, it's not even the constant, it's the, it's the fact that it fades out and then it comes back. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Oh, just, you just start slapping yourself in the face in the middle of the night. No, no, go away. Then you think you got it. And so you, you and I are both cursed and blessed with height. And most backpacking tents are not made for folks that no. are, you know, 6'2 and an eighth of a ton. In my case, not yours. And I find that even in my sleeping bag on a pad, that no matter how long my tent is, my head is always still kind of crammed up against that mm. the mesh door. I can't tell you how many times I've bitten through the mesh door of a backpacking tent because my head or an arm or something has been stuck up against the wall. Yeah. And they just bite right through the nose. They don't give mesh. a fuck. Uh, yeah, the mosquito can't get through, but his proboscis can. Yeah. It's little, little bendy mouth parts. Yeah. The little, that prick. And the the mosquito bites. So I was doing some research for this episode, and I and I got really into this. I just I didn't realize that the mosquitoes are so ubiquitous and so irritating. But there's actually a lot going on there, just with something as simple as a mosquito bite. And so I was curious to know why is it that mosquito bites itch? Is it the the saliva of the mosquito itself that's an irritant, or? Is it a response from us, from our own chemicals that, that cause the itch? And as it turns out, it's it's a little bit of both and a little bit of neither. The first thing that you have to understand about our immune system as human beings is that it has a memory. If it's going to react against something, it first has to have an understanding of what it is that it's going to react against. So it takes an initial exposure to learn the chemical signature of a foreign substance, and then it reacts the next time that it encounters it. 
This is what happens with, with bee sting allergies, for example. It's not the first time you get stung by a bee that's going to kill you. It's going to be that second time when you have the anaphylactic reaction where your body just goes haywire and shuts down your airway. Yeah, but, so my son has a bee sting allergy. He's had anaphylactic reactions. But I have strong memories of each of his subsequent exposures or stings being worse than the one before. Exactly. And it's because that there's that compounding effect of the stronger and stronger that memory gets, the more and more your body reacts. And of course, not everybody develops as a strong bee sting allergy. It's just in order for us to develop any sort of reaction at all, besides the, the general immune reaction we have, we create this memory of this chemical signature. And so in a study that was done investigating this very topic, mice that were injected with mosquito saliva showed no itching response. However, the next time they received an injection, they showed an immediate dose-dependent response to the saliva. What this suggests is that there are some antigens present in mosquito saliva. So there's these, these specific chemical signatures in the mosquito saliva that the mouse immune system had learned to react to, and it would induce this itching response on subsequent exposures. Interestingly, when the mice were given naloxone, Narcan, the itching behavior disappeared. Has this been studied in humans? So, so <laughs> not in this way, but yes, there are some studies that, that show the relationship between opioids, opioid antagonists, and the itching response. I don't have a problem with the smack, but you can get Narcan at any pharmacy now. <laughs> I think I need some Narcan. <laughs> so, hold on. Hold on to that thought. This, the fact that when they're given Narcan, and the, the itching behavior disappeared, plus other research that's been done regarding the relationship between opioids and itching, it, it suggests that there is this release of endorphins that comes with itching behavior. And or endorphins are just our body's own natural morphine. It's our body's heroin, basically. And that explains why itching a scratch feels so, so good. So good. And why it's so difficult to resist the temptation to do it when you know you shouldn't. It's because of that scratching. You're getting this release of opioids. Your body saying, yes, more of that, please. And you know you shouldn't do it, but you can't help yourself. Talking about using Narcan as an anti-itch versus using, let's say, an antihistamine. I have found that using a daily antihistamine does a good job of kind of suppressing that immune response to any sort of bite. Whether it's a mosquito or a bug or anything like that. But the direct role of histamine in mediating that itch response is actually unclear. One of the parts of that research I just mentioned, they gave this histamine antagonist, they gave this basically blocker of histamine, and they found that that did not significantly reduce itching behavior. Now, it could be the type of antihistamine they used. It could be the fact that it's a mouse. It could be a lot of things. So there's no definite information for humans yet as to the role of an antihistamine in blocking the itch response to a mosquito bite. But hey, it couldn't hurt to try. You can get it at any CVS, any right at any pharmacy. If you're really bothered by mosquito bites, try it. See if it works for you. It potentially could. So that that sound, that where does that come from? So that is actually the sound of the mosquito's wings beating anywhere from 300 to 600 times per second. They're like hummingbirds? They're like nature's ugly, smaller hummingbirds. Yes. I hate them even more. <laughs> They've ruined something so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> 
So there's an old wives' tale that mosquitoes prefer some people to others. Yeah, it's like my my mother always says that she's she's sweeter, and that's why she has sweet blood, and that that's why the the mosquitoes like her. Yeah, that's uh, that's not true. Yeah, that's but, that's nice. <laughs> but but there is some science to back up that mosquitoes do show a preference for some people over others. So let's talk for a second about how mosquitoes are attracted to their prey. Mosquitoes can detect carbon dioxide plumes from 75 feet away. And they... So, so we just have to stop breathing? Yeah, if you stop breathing, you're golden. Totally. I can assure you mosquitoes will never bother you again. <laughs> Most other things will also never bother you again if you stop breathing. You will stop being bothered completely. <laughs> mosquitoes that are attracted to humans, because not all mosquitoes are, detect them by sensing that carbon dioxide emanating from their breath. And then once they get close enough, they settle into the haze of carbon dioxide that emanates from the skin. So there's actually two receptor systems they have for detecting this carbon dioxide. One is that irregular plume that helps them to kind of hone in on our position. And then they just want to get into that general fog of carbon dioxide that sits around us at at all times. However, that's not all that there is to this. Mosquitoes also have a very complicated olfactory receptor system that senses certain chemicals that emanate from human skin. Lactic acid, which is unique to humans, seems to be implicated with this, but there are over 350 chemicals that our skin releases, and the unique cocktail that attracts mosquitoes has not yet been identified. And mosquitoes, like I said, they do indeed show preference for some people over others. It's not as specific as we might think, at least part of this, at least part of what's going on, is olfactory. They also show a preference for adults as opposed to children, but interestingly, gender and race do not seem to influence their preferences. But what's cool here is that behavior and learning in the mosquito also plays a role. A study that was done just in this last year showed that mosquitoes differentially learn about defensive versus non-defensive humans. When a mosquito goes to bite a person and they experience a, a noxious stimulus, like a, like a failed slap, for example, their brain associates the smell of that particular person with that negative experience. However, with a successful feeding, the brain of that mosquito now associates the smell of that person with a release of dopamine, which is the neurotransmitter responsible for learning in humans. It is also the neurotransmitter Closely related with cocaine use. Yeah, dopamine's human smack. (laughs) Exactly. It's an effective learning tool. What this means is that mosquitoes learn who they can bite without negative consequences, and then they show a preference for that specific person in the future. Now, that's mosquito-specific. That's not like that message gets communicated out in the mosquito community like, yo, this dude, real easy. (laughs) You can bite him for days. Doesn't care at all. That's why you just have to kill them all. You just got to eradicate them. But but what that means is that the same mosquito can learn your scent and it will come back to feed more. And mosquitoes can travel up to hundreds of miles. There's an interesting relationship here between these fundamental chemicals of the carbon dioxide that comes from our breath and it being attracted to mosquitoes. And then a very similar but also very different compound, carbon monoxide. And I want to talk about carbon monoxide, but in order to get there, I have to talk about something else first. And this is really, 
if you do international travel, if you go to tropical climates, if you go to Africa, you are bound to come across the disease malaria. I think most people have heard of this disease. I was unaware of how prevalent it was. Malaria, which is a mosquito-borne illness, kills 600,000 people every year. This, this is mostly in sub-Saharan Africa. And then about 125,000 others die of other diseases carried by mosquitoes. But malaria is this huge killer. Yeah, I think more people die of malaria than pretty much anything else. More people die of malaria every year than are killed by murderers worldwide. I think the numbers are like 425,000 a year about are murdered. And malaria kills 600,000 a year. So that makes mosquitoes... Murderers. Well, yes. <laughs> but that makes mosquitoes more deadly to humans than other humans, which is impressive. But let's talk for a second about what malaria is, just to kind of clarify that concept. Malaria is, is an infectious disease that's caused by one of any of these five species of a particular genus of parasite. The two most common and lethal of the five are Plasmodium falciparum, which accounts for about 75% of malaria cases, and Plasmodium vivax, which is another 20%. So this parasite lives in the saliva of the female mosquito of the genus Anopheles. When the female bites a human, the parasites enter into the bloodstream, and then they travel to the liver, they mature there, and they reproduce. And then they just kind of chill and wait for the opportune moment. The initial symptoms of malaria are very similar to the flu, but they have this distinguishing feature of a periodic fever where there is this sudden worsening of a febrile state that eventually resolves, but then recurs at predictable time intervals. And what's interesting about that is that the length of time between the febrile periods is dependent on the particular species of plasmodium the person is infected with. So you can typify it just based on the time interval. Exactly. That's kind of neat. Yeah, and, and here's so here's what happens. After the parasites leave the liver, they enter into red blood cells and they reproduce asexually. And eventually, that red blood cell bursts, releasing a large amount of parasites into the bloodstream at one time. And this allows them to find new red blood cells to infect. But it also explains the periodicity of the fever. It's all of the infected red blood cells bursting at about the same time, causing this immune response. In the bursting red blood cells based on their asexual reproduction timeline. And so the, the different genus or the different type of parasite has a different uh, reproduction exactly. timeline. And then you can typify fever length. That's pretty... Isn't that cool? Yeah. That's yeah. Cool. So what we know is that there are certain things that are protective against malaria. And one of those things is sickle cell disease genes. And what's amazing about this is that this is evolution in action. This is natural selection happening before our very eyes. So let's delve into this a little bit. When a red blood cell needs to pass through a capillary to oxygenate tissue, it needs to squeeze itself through this very small space and then rebound back to its original shape. Well, in sickle cell disease, the cells don't have this elasticity. And when they get compressed, they're deformed into the shape of the sickle, hence the name. They can't rebound back to that kind of donutty shape that they want to be at. So why this happens? Hemoglobin is the protein in red blood cells that carry oxygen. The protein 
hemoglobin is manufactured from the blueprint carried in the genes. And in people with sickle cell disease, their body cannot appropriately manufacture functioning hemoglobin. But in order to have sickle cell disease, both copies of the gene have to be faulty. Remember that we get one set of genes from the mother and one from the father. For people that have one functioning and one abnormal gene, they are essentially asymptomatic. And it is these people that are immune to malaria. So why is this the case? Why is it the people that have one faulty gene and one functioning gene, why is it they are essentially immune to malaria? Well, as it turns out, it has to do with carbon monoxide. In an experiment with mice, Reachers demonstrated that the heterozygous carriers, the ones who had one normal and one abnormal copy of the hemoglobin blueprint gene, they have a small amount of free heme circulating in their bloodstream, and heme is just a component of hemoglobin. This small amount of heme gets broken down by an enzyme called heme oxygenase 1, and a byproduct of this breakdown is carbon monoxide. And it's this low concentration of carbon monoxide in the blood that prevents the development of malaria. If you look at a map of the incidence of malaria in Africa, a map of the incidence of sickle cell disease overlays almost perfectly on top of it. This is a case of parasites driving human evolution, of disease naturally selecting and making changes in our genome to select for people that are better able to survive and reproduce in environments. So we live in Vermont. We don't see a lot of sickle cell anemia here, uh, partially because it's often seen in the African-American population. I mean, this is a, uh, a disease of black African descent. And folks are more symptomatic in the cold. So it helps that we're one of the whitest states in the nation. <laughs> uh, so we, we don't see a lot of it in our emergency department. But... You also, folks that live in Africa, in a you know equatorial region, it's pretty warm, so they're not as symptomatic. And the way that we treat it here is lots of pain meds, give them oxygen, because it it helps with that. Uh, it, again, as those sickled cells try to make it through capillary beds, incredibly painful. I mean, they have lots of pain. But if you give them oxygen, it helps. Um, and you keep them warm. You cover them with warm blankets. It, it increases perfusion. Yeah. They get more oxygenation. Exactly. Less, less tissue ischemia. So, or you just move to Florida. <laughs> <laughs> that works too. If, if you are of that ilk. Now let's talk about, now that we've discussed ants and we've discussed mosquitoes, let's talk about how to keep these little fuckers away from us. Let's talk about effective bug deterrents. I... I had to include this quote from one of the studies that I was looking at about the efficacy of different bug deterrents. So you've heard of these things that are like clip-on mosquito repellents or sonic mosquito repellents, the ones that use sound waves. I, I'm just going to quote from the paper because I thought this was really fucking funny. It says, The personal sonic mosquito repeller we tested had no effect on the overall mosquito attraction to the human subject. This confirms the results of a previous study that tested similar devices and found that mosquitoes are unperturbed by them. We are not aware of any scientific study showing that mosquitoes can be repelled by sound waves, and therefore we consider these devices as the modern equivalent of snake oil. <laughs> For those of you that do not read many scientific articles, that is real strong language. That's, that's basically some scientists dropping the mic and saying, this is bullshit. 
That's that's a scientist with a sense of humor. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, they also went on to mention the study that the citronella candle combined with a human subject attracted slightly more mosquitoes than the human bait person alone. <laughs> However, this difference was not statistically significant. We found no indication that such candles repel a Egypti females. So they're basically they're doing the study to compare a lot of different chemical or sound deterrence of mosquitoes to conclude what was the most effective one, especially in the wake of things like the Zika virus of knowing that malaria is so widespread in the world. This is an active area of scientific research trying to figure out what does a good job of keeping mosquitoes away from people. Well, the only products in this study that had any effect were those containing DEET or PMD and PMD is the oil of lemon eucalyptus. And Interestingly, when the test subject and their applied treatment were moved farther away from the mosquitoes, attraction increased for all products except for the one containing DEET. So they had the person standing in this wind tunnel about three, about one meter away from this cage of mosquitoes. And there were three chambers to this cage. And they measured attraction as percentage of total mosquitoes either in the cage closest to the person, in the middle of the person, or farther away from the person. And so what they found was that when the person was standing only one meter away, there was a certain percentage that went towards them, depending on the treatment, with things like the sonic wave thing that had no effect. Something like 88% of the mosquitoes moved closer to the person. So there's this large attraction. And then you would expect that as the person moved farther away, the attraction would decrease. But that's not actually what happened. And what they figured out was this is because at about three meters away, three times the distance, the signal, the chemical signals from the person and their treatment essentially homogenized. And so it was a measure of efficacy of the treatments because now the treatments were less noxious and were more mixed in with the human smell. And that was the case for everything except for DEET. So either DEET has a stronger smell signature or it's so noxious that it repels mosquitoes even at that that far distance and the efficacy of DEET versus other products was also demonstrated in a study in 2002 that was published in the new england journal of medicine at a 23.8 percent concentration there was a complete protection time for mosquitoes of about 300 minutes which is not an insignificant amount of time no it's five hours so, so Fur Deet products, Benz is one of the more popular brands, but there's no, there's been no demonstration of added efficacy by using concentrations of Deet above thirty percent. And so you'll see mixtures of Deet from five percent up to about, I think Benz Max One Hundred is really about ninety five percent. Yeah, yeah. And they say that between the thirty percent, which is the standard Benz, and the Benz Max, the only difference is how often you need to put it on. That the the ninety five percent concentration is something like twelve hours. It's basically all day protection, whereas the the thirty percent you have to reapply every four to six hours. And it's worth noting that that there have been adverse side effects reported with with using DEET, but the adverse side effects that are reported it was only in the cohort that were using DEET in that ninety five to one hundred percent concentration range, or that were doing multiple applications, chronic exposure to DEET, multiple applications for extended periods of time. So it is absorbed directly through the skin. 
it's cleared out by the kidneys. Uh, they don't recommend higher concentrations. I think anything over about 25 or 30% on children because they have a greater skin body surface area. Uh, I, I personally don't use DEET on my kids. Uh, I use a natural product, either a, a lemon or eucalyptus oil or a Pickardin product, uh, which have also been shown to be pretty effective. Not as effective as DEET. Really nothing beats DEET. But DEET, I mean, DEET kind of scares me. It's, uh, I've seen it eat through plastic. Like you, so it comes in a little orange bottle oftentimes, the, the Ben's product. I've seen that leak onto the outer plastic, the, the packaging, and it, it will liquefy and eat through it. You can't use it around uh, monofilament, so the fishing line, because it'll eat right through it. It's nasty stuff. Yeah, but it works. Yeah, I if so if I'm wearing a, I, I try to cover up as much as I can. Like I was talking yeah. about wearing wind pants, long sleeve shirts, etc. I try to not put it on my face. I try to not put it on my hands, so I don't you know wipe my nose, my mouth, my eyes. You know, get into a you know, uh, that try to uh, decrease absorption as much as possible. Yeah, into that kind of mucus layer. If I've got a bandana that I've got maybe around my neck. I'll spray it on that. If I've got a hat on, I'll spray it on that. I'll spray it around the my cuffs, at my ankles, on my on my wrists, and I find that that helps. And then I'll just do like a, a quick spray on you know my my shirt and such. But I I really try to stay away from soaking myself in DEET. Uh, also, because I spend a lot of time in the water, and yeah. DEETs, um, you know, I'll I'll be on just a day hike, and if I come across a stream, I want to go in. And what I don't want to do is introduce that, you know, in really the, nasty, because it 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 lives in soil. I mean, it's a, just a nasty material. So I don't want to get that into the the water into the water source. But taking a a measured approach, it is worth mentioning that scientifically speaking, all review of the records has shown that that there's really very little evidence to suggest long term damage from occasional use of deep. So if you're going to go out in the woods and you use some DEET, it's really not going to kill you. Yep. You'll be okay. No, I, I would agree. Now, again, this field of research is being pursued because trying to keep mosquitoes away from people can have tremendous global effects for, for the benefit of, of human beings. And there is this other chemical that's currently being tested that was, being dis- that was discovered by researchers at Vanderbilt University. This compound is named VUAA1. And it works by essentially overloading the mosquito's olfactory receptors. It's kind of like what would happen if you were in complete darkness and then all of a sudden every single light receptor in your eye were stimulated to the max. You'd be completely blinded. You wouldn't be able to see a thing. The researchers that are working on this compound have suggested that based on preliminary testing, the compound may be thousands of times stronger than DEET. Now, keep in mind that this does not necessarily translate to efficacy or safety for human use, but it is promising for the development of novel insect deterrents in the future. Now, that's what we might use on our skin, on our exposed areas. I want to talk about what we could use for our gear, for our clothing, because there are some clothing manufacturers that are making clothes that are treated with permethrin. And permethrin is actually the only insecticide currently approved by the FDA for use on clothing and equipment like this. 
you can buy bottles of permethrin yourself and treat your own clothing. And it's good for a certain number of washes or a certain amount of time. I think it's six weeks or six washes. It's something like that. Have you ever used permethrin on your stuff? So I have. And you can buy products that already have been treated with permethrin. I know the Ex Officio does a product line where their their travel clothing is treated. I think it's the Buzz Off or Bug Off brand. Um, I know military uniforms now. Yeah. All, the, all the deployment or combat type uniforms are treated with a permethrin product. And the permethrin is... It's a synthetic variant of a compound that's made by chrysanthemums. So it's, it's you know, natural in its origin in the sense that it's made by flowers. You can, again, you can buy it as a spray. And what I'll do is I'll spray the, the hat or the bandana or the shirt that I'm going to wear the most. I know people that will even spray like a backpack or something. Um, and that lasts for, like you said, you know, six weeks or six washings. Uh, oftentimes you'll see it treated for either a bug head net or a bug suit, one of those kind of mesh jackets that folks wear. Uh, sometimes the, the mosquito bug, the nets that you can hang over your bunk or the, the ones you can hang from the ceiling that cover an entire bed, those are treated with permethrin, and that helps reduce the incidence of mosquitoes as well. Have you ever used one of those mosquito suits? No. So I, I do wear a head net, mm-hmm. um, one that... Usually goes, they've got ties that go underneath your arms and then it goes over your head. Uh, I find that they can be lifesavers. Um, it's hard to eat through one. <laughs> <laughs> and I've definitely tried to drink through one a few times. Sure, sure. <laughs> uh, what makes them more tolerable is wearing a baseball cap or a yeah. boonie hat, something with a wide brim underneath it. It kind of keeps it away from your face. That's what I do. There's a couple products that have uh, concentric metal rings that uh, keep, again, away from your face. Awar makes one. I have a really simple, basic one I've had for 20 years, and it works fine. I find that uh, the darker mesh tends to be a little bit easier to see through. It's just like a, a screen on your house. And that can keep them, again, you hear the whine, mm-hmm. but it can keep them away from your head. And sometimes that just that little bit of sanity replaced is, <laughs> is nice. Besides mosquitoes, I feel like I've gotten to the point in my life where I can deal with mosquitoes. They're an annoyance, yeah. But I'm not fearful of them. Oh yeah. Some something that makes me that that goes beyond an annoyance for me, at least in the Northwoods now. Something that I I actually get a little anxious about are ticks and Lyme disease, partially because they're so small, you don't hear them coming. There's no whine, and their their prevalence is. I mean, they're just they're everywhere, and Lyme disease is not just. Some, it, its incidence in the population is basically ubiquitous. I, mean, I consider every single tick as having Lyme disease at this point. And that's not, that's different from 10 years ago. That's a disease that's moved into the New England woods. I mean, we, we had it in small amounts 10 or 15 years ago, but it's something that is prevalent now. And Lyme disease is a nasty, nasty creature. I mean, you, sometimes you're completely asymptomatic so we, we think of the, the hallmark of Lyme disease, the initial bite being that, that target or bullseye rash where you get a, a red mark and then you get concentric circles of redness around it. So in medicine, that's called the, the classic presentation, but it's worth noting that only shows up 30% of the time. Yeah, it's not as common as yeah, you Classic would does not mean common. No. And the, the ticks that we're talking about are, 
I mean, they're not much larger than the comma at the end of a sentence. They are really tiny. So they're, they're hard to, they're hard to find. And we recommend that you, I mean, that there are national recommendations that you, you always wear bug spray and DEET is considered the most effective use here. And that you basically every time you go outside that you're in the woods, you check yourself head to toe afterwards. And that point, I mean, I do tick checks on my kids every single night where I go through their hair, I check under their armpits, I make sure that they don't have ticks on them. Because the downside to getting Lyme disease, I mean, in terms of chronic pain, the weird immune response, the joint issues, the it, it's just a nasty, nasty disease. They're easy to miss. Yeah. And they're easy to miss. They're easy enough to miss on human beings. They're really easy to miss on dogs. So as a public service announcement to anybody that has a dog, you know, hey, it's okay. Sometimes you... You miss ticks because the dogs have all the fur, but just make sure that your dogs are receiving the appropriate inoculation. They're getting the medications that they need, the you know the, the kind of anti-flea and tick meds. It's worth investing. You'll see them kind of get logy. They they seem to have joint pain. They are uh, less bright, less active, and often with a little treatment of antibiotics, they they pop back up. That comes down to I have long-haired dogs. Sometimes after a day in the woods, I'll pull twenty, thirty. 40 ticks off of them in in maine and some of the northeastern parts of the u.s and, and bridging up into canada there are these things there's there are these things called tick trees oh yeah you you knew some of those saw tick trees right what was it oh my my wife's uncle john he uh he said that it it looks like so it's a it's a place where a, a moose or a deer whitetail that has been covered in ticks has scraped them off along the side of a tree. And he said that it's just a mass of blood and fur and dead tick bodies. And it's just, it's disgusting. Ugh. So interestingly, the there are tick-borne diseases that have accounted for a reduction in the moose population in the state of Vermont. For this upcoming hunting season, they are issuing less than 20 permits. Less than 20 moose permits in the state of Vermont for this upcoming fall. And that's based on a tick-borne disease. So there was a recent news piece about moose in Maine and how up to 70% of moose calves are being killed by ticks. The ticks that usually infest deer have now managed to get onto moose calves and there are so many of them that they're draining the moose of blood. And causing this anemia, which kills the calves. Up to tens of thousands of ticks on a single animal. And the deer have this obligate grooming pattern that kind of clears them of their ticks. It's this natural evolved behavior that the moose don't have because this has never been a natural... uh, This has not been a natural issue for them. So they just get these ticks on them. And nothing they, nothing happens with it. They don't do anything about it. So just more and more and more ticks pile on. And then you have tens of thousands of ticks draining up to four milliliters of blood per tick. It's... It's leaders. Leaders it, it's, dis, it's disgusting. It is disgusting. And we started this episode with a description of a fictional horde of these small, tiny, evil insects. But there is a very real threat out there 
of tick-borne disease, of tick-borne illness in this area of the world. And it is appropriate to take measures to protect yourself, protect your animals, and protect your family from ticks. I don't want to harp on global climate change and global warming here, but I think a change in recent weather pattern in New England is part of why we've seen that. That the fact that we have shorter winters, like you said, winters that start later and end earlier, and that don't have these hard freezes, and, and not just freeze. We're not. I mean, we're not talking about sub thirty-two. We're talking about temperatures you know, below zero for days and weeks on end. That that doesn't kill off the tick population. So they they kind of get up to a certain level, and then instead of getting knocked back down and then building back up, they get they stay up and then they just grow bigger and stronger. And having I sometimes love seeing a a really really late freeze like a late spring freeze because I'm like oh it's gonna be a good bug year <laughs> <laughs> knock them down a little bit. <laughs> so bottom line is dress appropriately, use chemical deterrence if you must, and do regular tick checks because the consequences of not doing so can be quite dire. Even just showering. I mean I I know there's a lot of happy stinky hippies out there, but. <laughs> taking a shower after spending time outside. It's good for your neighbors. It's good for your ticks. Thank you everyone for joining us today. You can review the podcast on iTunes, subscribe, whatever you'd like to do. If you have suggestions for how we can improve, please let us know. You know, that's actually one of the core principles behind Lycos Designs. That that interactive feedback, that revision loop of constant improvement, it's pretty much been part of our foundation since we started. I also want to mention that we post all the references in the show notes. So any of the studies that I mentioned, any of the books, any really any outside sources at all, you can take a look at those and explore the topics more thoroughly if you'd like. And for today's podcast, it was a short story. We found it online for free. I'm also going to post a place where you can look it up and, and uh, read it for free yourself if you'd like to. And we'll also post a link on Amazon if you want to buy the book. Now, if you're interested in supporting the podcast, there are a couple different ways you can do it. First, if you'd like to get the books we talk about for yourself, you can access the Lycos reading list, the Lycos Designs website, which is www.lycosdesigns.com. That's L-Y-K-O-S designs.com. We'll post links to the books on Amazon, and going through us to get your books or your gear is a great way to support the podcast. Now, the disclaimer. We don't do the podcast to market Lycos Designs clothing. We started it to explore topics that talk about the relationship humans have with the world they inhabit about our place in it. We wanted to build up a community of folks that are invested in this idea to build up the forum for a larger conversation. So if you want to know more about what we do as a company and the kind of gear and clothing that we make, please feel free to check out the website and see what's there. But we're probably not going to go into the podcast too much. Furthering that idea of community, you can connect with us on Instagram at Lycos Designs, Facebook, or the Lycos Designs website. I personally read all the feedback that gets sent to us, so if you have something that you'd like to add to the dialogue, please know that it will be heard. Matt, final takeaways. We've been developing uh, a dialogue here where we've been kind of harping on the idea of having uh, the right tools, of having the right skill set, the kind of the right knowledge. And then in the last few podcasts, certainly with our chat with Mike Loria last week, and then here, like Leinigan, we need the right heart. You need to have... The right mindset. The right mindset. And I think having the mindset and having that... 
Tough to be imperturbable when you're being eaten by ants, but having the think the idea that you're going to persevere, you're going to prevail. You can have the right tools, you can have the right knowledge, but even with all the gasoline, even with even with all the the right tools, in Linegan's case, he's got water, gas, moats. Even with the idea that you you have the intellectual capability, you have the knowledge. It still takes the right mindset. You still have to think that you can persevere when you are opposed by something that seems impossible. So build up your skills, have the right tools, work on that mindset. You might end up a little streamlined. (laughs) But like Leinigan, you'll get through. And so with that, as always, go outside, stay there, and find your inner wolf. stabs you with it and injects you with this powerful neuropeptide called Panera toxin. Not, not the bread. <laughs> You're going to have to cut that I'm out. I'm cutting that right the fuck out. But when I was writing that, I did think about it. I was like, oh, Panera toxin. <laughs> um,